want you to hit me as hard as you can. Over the course of the 1980s, it became increasingly customary for the stars of action movies to deliver memorable quotes and one-liners. Go ahead. Make my day. That are alive, you are coming with me. Get away from her, you bitch! And so on. But few movies embraced that unofficial requirement quite like the 1989 Sylvester Stallone-Kurt Russell team-up Tango and Cash, in which almost every bit of dialogue seems like an attempt at a witty retort or clever quip. Glad you could drop in. You like jewelry? Aside from pairing up two major stars who filled the movie's runtime with a constant stream of ammunition and zingers, Tango and Cash is notable for being the last big-budget studio movie to be released in the 1980s. But what you may not know is that the production was, well, kind of a mess. Let's take a look at what the f happened to this movie. Tango and Cash, with all its macho banter, absurd violence, and gratuitous buttocks, didn't actually start out as a screenplay, but rather a simplistic premise concocted by a producer named John Peters. Now, Peters was a Hollywood heavy hitter at the time, but his name might also sound familiar to fans of filmmaker Kevin Smith. Over the years, Smith has often recounted stories of his early Hollywood adventures. In particular, his involvement with the attempted revival of DC's biggest comic book superhero with the movie Superman Lives, which John Peters was producing. According to Smith, during his initial script meetings for the project in the mid-1990s, Peters insisted he didn't want the character to fly or wear the traditional Superman costume. He demanded that the iconic hero fight a gigantic spider in the movie's climax, a wish that essentially came true in 1999's Wild Wild West, also produced by Peters. And when Smith had finished a draft of the script, he was required to read it aloud to Peters. Uh, to have a meeting with John, right? I said, talk about the script? She goes, to read the script. And I go, what do you mean read the script? And she's going, he likes to have the, the script read to him out loud. And I was like, get out of here, man. You want me to like tuck him in after I'm done? She's going, I'm serious. Although the Superman Lives project ultimately disintegrated in the late 90s, John Peters had become a force of nature in Hollywood long before that. His career actually started during the 1970s as a hairdresser at his family's high-profile Beverly Hills salon, bringing him into close contact with A-list celebrities. This led to a lengthy romance with client Barbara Streisand, and he went on to manage her music and movie career, which included producing the 1976 remake of A Star Is Born. After producing the beloved 1980 comedy Caddyshack, Peters joined up with fellow producer Peter Goober, and together they accumulated hits throughout the 80s, including Flashdance, The Color Purple, Rain Man, The Witches of Eastwick, and Tim Burton's Batman. Creatively, Peters had some very specific and unique ideas, of varying quality, but he had also earned a reputation for overbearing and unpredictable behavior, with a penchant for verbal abuse abuse and physical interactions. One director who worked with him said you could never be sure if he'd kiss you or grab you in a headlock. His original arrangement for the rights to Superman ensured his involvement in any future movie with the character. But thanks to his level of notoriety, even many years later, Peters was barred by producer Christopher Nolan from ever visiting the set of Man of Steel. Anyway, that bit of background on Peters and his colorful personality should help set the stage for what would occur behind the scenes on Tango and Cash. The basic idea that Peters envisioned for the movie was to have two competitive mismatched LA detectives get framed and wind up in jail together. He also wanted one cop to become romantically involved with the sister of the other. His production company, Goober Peters, brought in screenwriter Randy Feldman to expand this high concept into a full script. 
which was given the straightforward title, The Setup. It seemed like a perfectly reasonable idea. After all, the 1980s were filled with audience favorites that followed the buddy cop formula, like Lethal Weapon, Beverly Hills Cop, Running Scared, Dragnet, and Stakeout. But it was also in Peters' head to make this an unprecedented event by pairing up two of the world's biggest action gods of the decade, Sylvester Stallone and the Terminator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the Barbarian. Stallone had become a megastar during the 1980s. His Rocky and Rambo movies were generating hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office, and even a relatively smaller Stallone vehicle like Cobra could pull in nearly 50 million in 1986. Stallone agreed to play Ray Tango, the dapper half of the setup's cop duo, but Schwarzenegger wasn't interested in the project. It would take another two decades before they shared the screen in the Expendables movies. Schwarzenegger's rejection left an Arnie-sized hole that needed to be filled. So the producers went to the substantially smaller Patrick Swayze. That may seem like an odd choice, since Swayze's action movie credentials were limited to Red Dawn and Uncommon Valor, along with the post-apocalyptic dud Steel Dawn, but his star status had received a significant boost from the smash success of Dirty Dancing in 1987. But Swayze's involvement didn't even last long enough for cameras to start rolling, and instead he took his mullet down to the double deuce to play the best cooler in the business in Roadhouse. With the start of production looming, the movie still needed a second leading man to butt heads with Stallone. After a brief scramble, they settled on Kurt Russell to play scruffy charmer Gabriel Cash, Tango's crime-busting rival from across town. At the time, Russell had been working in TV and movies for most of his life, but somehow still wasn't exactly a big action star or a box office draw. Up to that point, his highest grossing movies were the Oscar-nominated drama Silkwood and the crime thriller Tequila Sunrise with Mel Gibson and Michelle Pfeiffer. It was the growth of home video in the 1980s that really raised his profile. He had connected with genre fans through countless VHS rentals of The Thing, Escape from New York, and Big Trouble in Little China. To direct the movie, Peters made an unexpected choice in Andrei Konchalovsky, a respected Russian filmmaker who had directed award-winning films such as Uncle Vanya and Siberiad. Konchalovsky's only major North American film was the 1985 thriller Runaway Train, starring Eric Roberts and John Voight. As they developed the script, Konchalovsky hit it off with Feldman, and the director saw the project as an opportunity to make a cunning criticism of the standard Hollywood action movie. Cinematographer Barry Sonnenfeld, who later went on to direct The Addams Family, Men in Black, and, yep, Wild Wild West, was hired as director of photography. Acting veteran Jack Palance came in to play the movie's chief villain, an eccentric drug lord and arms dealer named Yves Perret. The role of Tango's sister Catherine, who would also be Cash's love interest, went to Daphne Ashbrook. More on that in a minute. The cast was rounded out with an endless parade of familiar character actors. Perrette's crime lieutenants would be played by James Hong and Mark Alimo, joined by Blade Runner replicant Brian James as a ponytailed henchman with a dubious Cockney accent. Jeffrey Lewis and Eddie Bunker would play the respective police captains of Tango and Cash. And there was Michael J. Pollard as a quirky weapons developer, Michael Jeter as a sketchy audio expert, Clint Howard as Tango's fidgety cellmate, and the legendary jaw of Robert Zadar as a psychotic prisoner with a grudge. The Warner Brothers movie started filming in June of 1989 for a planned shoot of 11 weeks, followed by a December release date. Things went out of control almost immediately. Even as the cameras rolled, the script was constantly being rewritten due to the conflicting visions for the film from all parties. During his time on the production, Feldman wrote about a dozen drafts while trying to incorporate ideas from Konchalovsky, who wanted to go in a subversive direction, and Peters, who kept injecting ideas that were more excessively and cartoonishly over the top. 
Meanwhile, Sylvester Stallone was unquestionably the movie's biggest asset, and he seemed to be flexing his A-list muscle by intervening in every element of the production. The first casualty of his considerable influence was Barry Sonnenfeld, who was fired after the first few days, supposedly because the star didn't like how he was being lit. Sonnenfeld was replaced with cinematographer Donald Thorin, who had just shot Stallone in lockup. In addition to rewriting pages of the script himself each morning, Stallone was also reportedly doing some ghost directing, pulling strings from the sidelines, similar to what he had done on First Blood Part II and Cobra, both officially credited to director George P. Cosmatos, whose name is also on Tombstone, which Kurt Russell called the shots on from behind the scenes. But that's another whole story. Producer Larry Franco, who had previously worked with Russell on his collaborations with director John Carpenter, had been enlisted to try and manage the daily operations to keep the movie on track and on budget. But it was a never-ending series of obstacles that included a fluid script, a hectic schedule, a flustered crew, and the volatile tendencies and creative whims of John Peters, who would continuously hurl additional ideas into the mix, along with threats and profanity, forcing the production to constantly adjust and the cost to rise. As Franco told Empire Magazine, Tango and Cash was the most screwed up show I ever worked on, and I worked on Apocalypse Now. One person who benefited from all the production chaos was Brian James. The actor was originally meant to have just two scenes in the movie, but the stars liked what he had done with the character so much that he was given more to do, with Stallone writing him into additional scenes. James ended up working on the movie for 14 weeks, and when it was determined partway through production that Daphne Ashbrook wasn't working out, TV actor Terry Hatcher was brought in to reshoot scenes for Tango's much younger sister Catherine, a stage performer at an upscale nightclub slash strip club whose inexplicable routine involves provocative dancing and electronic drumming. As the weeks went on, Konchalovsky's disagreements with John Peters over the producer's bullheaded impulse to veer into parody left them no longer on speaking terms. As an example, it was Peters who randomly came up with the notion of having Cash disguise himself in drag to evade police, which Peters thought was hilarious. Screenwriter Randy Feldman resisted the idea, but after the promise of violence from the unfiltered Peters, he agreed. Upon informing Russell of the intended change, Feldman tells Empire that the actor's response was, Well, I've done a lot of stupid things on film, but usually I don't do them on purpose. Putting characters in women's clothing seems to be a recurring theme with Peters, who also later insisted on Will Smith's jarring belly dance scene in Wild Wild West, sometime after co-star Kevin Kline had already appeared in a dress. Dissatisfied with the overall trajectory of Tango and Cash, Konchalovsky had deliberately slowed his pace, testing the patience of the producers. But this just led executive producer Peter McDonald to oversee the second unit to shoot whatever chunks of the script were able to go before cameras on a given day. A Hollywood veteran who had worked on everything from Superman to Hamburger Hill in a variety of roles, McDonald was accustomed to similar discord, taking over directing on Stallone's Rambo 3 the year prior, after the star fired the original director, Russell Mulcahy. Rambo? is a pussy. There was also the matter of the third act, which had been one of Konchalovsky's main points of contention. The biggest problem with the ending was that it basically didn't exist. It seems that nothing solid was ever really on the page. As the period between filming and release was rapidly shrinking, Konchalovsky was dismissed from the production. To finish the movie, the producers and studio quickly brought in Albert Magnoli. In addition to directing Prince's acting debut in Purple Rain, Magnoli had more recently sat behind the camera for the pop superstar's Batman music videos. Randy Feldman was already gone, so screenwriter Jeffrey Bohm, who had rewritten the 1987 Martin Short Dennis Quaid comedy Inner Space for Peters and Goober, was called in to do whatever he could with the script. Part of the inspiration for the fiery finale actually came to John Peters while in LA traffic, when he spotted colossal construction equipment and became infatuated with including the expensive oversized vehicles in the end sequence. 
For several weeks, Magnoli frantically raced to complete the climactic attack on Perret's compound, with stunt coordinator Gary Himes trying to make sure nobody got killed in the process. The budget ballooned from 35 million to 55 million, and still the wild ideas kept flying. Palance's scenery-chewing crime boss went from the sort of guy who keeps a box of mice on his desk and watches his adversaries on a bank of TVs, to an increasingly ludicrous villain who employs monster trucks with mounted rocket launchers, has a secret hall of mirrors hidden behind a wall of his office, and rigs his base with a talking self-destruct bomb timed for precisely 11 and a half minutes. Editor Stuart Baird and his team struggled to assemble something coherent with the finished footage, which turned out to be a major challenge. Once Magnoli was done with the ending sequence, he shot whatever else was necessary to fill in the movie's blanks, or at least as much as possible in the allotted time. The heroes themselves had not been immune to the movie's many misfortunes. While filming an early scene, Russell had sustained a leg injury that affected him through the entire shoot. I'm cranking away getting, I figure the first day of shooting, I'm, well, I'm ready to go now, and so I gotta run down the street after this bad guy. And the third take, I <laughs> ripped my hamstring. That's really? It. So mm -hmm. I said, oh, so I got to go through the rest of the movie. Well, it only got worse from there. I, I, everything went wrong for me. Because you don't work out? Nah, not that much. <laughs> and during the explosive climax, a fire in the duo's assault vehicle scorched Sylvester Stallone's well-groomed hair. We're on fire! Yeah, we're cooking now! Fortunately, Russell's fantastic hair survived unscathed. In the rapidly dwindling time before release, composer Harold Faltermeyer provided the score, which sounds like it could have been unused material from Beverly Hills Cop, with Gary Chang finishing the job. As the studio demanded constant edits to the movie, it barely made deadline and was rushed to theaters as wet prints, industry slang that implies the film processing chemicals hadn't even dried yet. Tango and Cash finally shot onto screens on December 22, 1989, opening in second place behind National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. A headline in the movie's final shot almost seemed like a preemptive response to critics, whose reviews at the time included words like mindless, formulaic, pathetically juvenile, and goonish. But fans of Stallone, Russell, and action movies in general didn't really seem to care. The movie ended up with 63 million at the box office, and went on to become a gigantic hit on home video. Jack Palance was brutally candid while promoting the movie's release. This had to be just about the worst experience I've had. Really? Yeah, working in a film. He was originally meant to have three scenes with Sylvester Stallone that were then excised from the script, and he claimed that he never even worked with the actor at all during filming. Indeed, their prison encounter and final showdown could be purely a result of clever editing. Palance hinted that much of the production's troubles were the result of the inflated ego of Stallone, and yet it also seems like the star's clout was one of the factors that helped drive the movie to completion. Andrei Konchalovsky said in later interviews he believed that he and Stallone were simpatico in their desire to make a more artistic and serious take on the material, but that seems to contradict what's actually on screen. According to the credited writer Randy Feldman, the majority of the finished movie's dialogue, in all its wise-cracking glory, was actually written by Stallone. I think with your IQ, you're unarmed and still very dangerous. Actor Brian James is also on record saying that Stallone was instrumental in having the director removed from the production. Tango and Cash was Konchalovsky's last attempt at a big American studio movie. Reflecting back, the director has joked that he enjoyed his experience of humiliation and lack of freedom in Hollywood. As he told The Guardian in 2014, I was very happy to be fired. I got my money and went to France. He was even more honest about his feelings for the finished product, saying, Tango and Cash, like every real Hollywood film, is a film for people who cannot read. Writer Jeffrey Bohm later described his work on Tango and Cash as a long, incredible, awful rewrite that he didn't even try to get credit for. 
Given the pains of the production and the Frankenstein result, it's no surprise that the movie's logic disappears under any amount of scrutiny. There's Cash, a wanted fugitive, casually strolling into the LAPD's experimental weapons lab to borrow some guns. Shortly after that, a few dozen cops show up at the nightclub where Tango's sister works, and yet nobody on the force, except his captain, thinks to check the house that Tango owns. A random henchman is literally introduced in the final minutes, so Tango has someone to fight during the climax. This bit is even stranger considering martial arts legend Benny the Jet Urquidez was already involved with the production and would have been perfect for just such a face-off, but his only appearance in the final movie is a brief glimpse during the prison sequence. And anyone who's watched the trailer knows that there are other scenes that didn't make it into the movies. There's no telling how much was left on the cutting room floor, or if it would have helped. But none of the movie's negative reactions, or well-publicized pandemonium behind the scenes, had any impact on the career of producer John Peters. In fact, before 1989 ended, he and partner Peter Goober had been offered several hundred million dollars to become the co-executives of Sony Pictures. In the years since its grueling journey through production, Tango and Cash has become appreciated as a satisfyingly unapologetic example of 80s action excess. A bullet-stuffed sausage that was processed through the meat grinder mind of a powerful Hollywood producer named John Peters. <laughs>